Welcome to the Millard Fillmore episode. With me for this week's podcast is my colleague, Tiri Shapiro, who's a fantastic education reporter here at the Washington Post. Hello, folks. So this is going to be fun. <laughs> um, just as background for everyone listening, I, I asked you to help me out with this episode because I've been really interested since starting this podcast in the question of how all of these American presidents are actually taught in U.S. history classes. Mm-hmm. In particular, what the long-term effect is on, you know, not only which presidents we think are great, but the ones that we sort of immediately write off as unmemorable because we just never even had to learn a single thing about them. Um, yeah. So I remember when I when I asked if I could help you out with this, which was really exciting, uh, I was hoping maybe to talk about, you know, one of the seminal figures of history. And then you say, <laughs> how about Millard Fillmore? And I had to stop and, for a second and say, who? Which I think is sort of our collective feeling about President Millard Fillmore. He's our most forgettable president, maybe. I can't tell you how many people, when they hear I'm doing a podcast about presidents, have said, what in the world are you going to do for episodes on the totally obscure presidents like Millard Fillmore? Every single time, it's like Millard Fillmore is the example people give of the president that they can't imagine I could have anything interesting to talk about for an episode. Um, so what we're going to do for you know the next half hour, though, is explore the question of, well, one, is there actually some interesting and important lessons to learn about Fillmore's presidency, and then also kind of the broader question of how do we teach presidents today in American history classes. I'm Lillian Cunningham. I'm T. Reese Shapiro. And this is the 13th episode of Presidential. Let's roll. Do students today even learn Millard Fillmore's name? Not, I'm not even asking anything about him, but just the name Millard Fillmore. Well... Obviously, it varies school to school and state to state, but in most cases, not really. There's been this push to standardize a lot of the curriculum across the country, and that's called the Common Core. So more Mm -hmm. than 40 states around the country have adopted the Common Core, and part of what it does is it's changed the way that we teach history in classrooms. And it relies less on memory recall, like tell me who is the 13th president of the United States, but more about if I give you a fact about him or a fact about the era in which he was president, can you then tell me what powers does he have as president and analyze what he would have been able to do with what was placed in front of him? But they do not necessarily teach them all the names or expect them even to remember all the names because they can just say, go Google that. So that is very interesting and that's something that's definitely happening. And Virginia, which has uh, separate standards than the Common Core, early on in elementary school, they do want students to be able to identify presidents where they talk about them by name. But do we expect collectively a student in third grade by the time they reach high school to remember who is Millard Fillmore? I mean, probably not, right? If, if as adults and professionals, we can't remember who he is, <laughs> how can we expect high schoolers much less? So yeah, it, it is just sort of this very interesting transition that we've made in education. Away from just the sort of like concrete facts. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the power of the internet and information age, what's, what's the point of some would argue wasting, you know, brain space on trivial facts 
right? And it's sort of sad that we consider a trivial fact to be, can you name all of the 44 presidencies? Right. But the Millard Fillmore gets left out. Well, so even though previous generations were more likely to have memorized the names of presidents at some point in their schooling, it turns out that by the time they got to college, they were just as bad at remembering the American presidents as college students today are. Yeah, so there's actually a guy who studies this specifically, and he's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and his name is Henry Rodiger. And uh, he's been tracking this over time, generation after generation of college students. So I called him up, and I asked if he could comb through all the data that he has specifically on Millard Fillmore and our collective memory of him. You've been testing people's ability to remember presidents' names for more than 40 years now, right? It looks like your research started. started in 1973, actually. It's pretty amazing that we get exactly the same data for the early presidents in 1973-74 that we got in 2009. For Millard Fillmore, uh, only 8% of the people in our studies can recall him. That is to say, when they do this one study where they ask people to write down the names of all the presidents they know, only 8% actively remember Millard Fillmore's name and, you know, think to write his name down. 8%. 8%. That's it. Um, But, well, when they show people Fillmore's name on a list and they ask if he was a president, the numbers jump in that case, at least. It goes up to 65% who, when they see his name and are explicitly asked if he was a president, they say, yes, I recognize him as a president. And that's actually very low. The average recognition rate for the presidents is about 80%. So Fillmore is one of the lower ones, not the very lowest, but one of the lower ones. And even when people recognize him as president, they're not very confident. I I thought I saw, too, in your study that people were far more confident that Alexander Hamilton had been president than Fillmore. Right. The recognition rate was higher, actually, for Hamilton, who, of course, never was president. Mm-hmm. So 71% of the people thought Alexander Hamilton was president, uh, perhaps because he's on the $10 bill. More people may think Hamilton was president than Fillmore, but Fillmore isn't actually at the very, very bottom of the list. That honor goes to Chester Arthur, who seriously only 5% of people could name him as a president. So how come Fillmore does better than Arthur? So this Professor Rodiger said that it's probably just because of Fillmore's, you know, slightly more unusual name. That makes sense. Millard Fillmore, even if you haven't heard it very many times, if you do hear it, it's, you know, at least a bit more memorable And there's also that comic strip that had Mallard Fillmore, the duck, which also helps kind of keep the Millard Fillmore name in some popular circulation. Okay, so you spoke to a number of teachers about how they teach or don't teach Millard Fillmore, right? Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. Yeah, so we're going to come back to this later, too, but were they all like, of course we don't teach Millard Fillmore? The good news is when I did sort of this informal poll asking local teachers and, and administrators in Fairfax County, for example, can you tell me about how you teach the presidency of Millard Fillmore? None of them said who. So they all knew, which is great. <laughs> That's a good sign. That's a very good sign. Uh, some really great educators in Virginia. Um, but they did note that it's just something that they have to contend with in their daily in their daily work. They have a very strict schedule that they have to adhere to. So they don't necessarily want to waste time in their classroom in order to teach a president whose significance on like our 
our you know quilt of history in the United States is sort of a very small patch, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as Fillmore correctly considered insignificant and unmemorable. Let's take a look at the story of this vice president, born in 1800, who went on to become president himself in 1850, after President Zachary Taylor died in office. For this, I spoke with the historian and biographer Jean Baker, who's an expert on 19th century politics. Tell me about how he grew up and what his family background was and his upbringing in New York. Millard Fillmore, who's one of our more invisible presidents grew up in upstate New York, and it was a hard scrabble early life. His father had owned land outside of Buffalo, New York, and at least as far as I'm concerned, this is not good farming territory. He had been unable to pay his taxes, and the land uh, had been claimed, and he was determined, this is the father, that his son uh, have a better life than he had had. So the father arranges for Millard Fillmore, when he's a teenager, to apprentice for a cloth maker in Buffalo, New York. But this basically amounts to indentured servitude. The cloth maker actually paid Fillmore's family in order to have him as a worker. And Fillmore is mistreated, he's worked nearly to death, and after a few years he saves up the little money he can and buys his freedom from this cloth maker master then walks home a hundred miles to his poor family's farm. The only thing Millard Fillmore has read growing up is the Bible, up until he's 17 years old, when he buys himself a dictionary to help with his vocabulary. He wants so much to be better educated that he starts taking some adult classes apprentices for a lawyer, and eventually, after studying really hard, passes the bar and becomes a lawyer himself. After a while of working in law, he moves into local politics. In those days, at that time, politics was a real avenue for advancement, and a lot of uh, poor young boys used it, and so did Millard Fillmore. He was in the New York legislature. In the 1820s, uh, he then moved on to Congress, where he had four terms as a congressman. And he didn't stand out, uh, but he had a very stolid kind of temperament, and he didn't offend many people. Uh, He didn't attract many people either. Could you tell me a little bit more about Millard Fillmore's character, just in the sense of like, you know, if I knew nothing about him and I were about to walk into a room and meet him for the first time. What he looked like, I can tell you that. Yeah, what he would look, what he looked like, what, how charismatic he was, you know. You know, know, this is the 1840s, it's not the 2016 when we know uh, even the size of these presidential hands, so to speak. You know, we don't know a lot about him, and that's the uh, problem when I think people try to make these talk about presidents other than the Founding Fathers and Andrew Jackson, and you get into these lesser-known presidents. They're in part lesser-known because they didn't leave a whole uh, 
a lot of letters that we have, and we really don't know much about him. Uh, people, when he was in Congress, hardly noticed him. He was not um, the author of any legislation to speak of, and he led a very temperate life. He married a woman whom he had known from uh, the Buffalo area, Abigail, and I think she proved, as many uh, wives do, a, a, a really beneficial uh, influence on him. She, in many ways, gentrified this guy who had really grown up as the son uh, of a failed farmer. Do you have a sense of what's helping his political climb? I mean, is he um, is he good at working with people? Is he, uh, <laughs> you know, like what what is facilitating his yeah. rise? Um. Yeah, he, well, clearly he's able to communicate to uh, his district. He had a real string of successful elections to Congress. But, you know, uh, there's very little that stands out about Miller uh, Fillmore, except for this, his physical appearance. He was a very impressive-looking guy. He was handsome. Uh, he was tall, and that, I think, was what made him stand out in many ways more than any of his political ideas. Queen Victoria reportedly said he was the most handsome man she had ever met. And some people today have pointed out, on the internet, of course, that Millard Fillmore bears a striking resemblance to the actor Alec Baldwin. Google it decide for yourself. But as for his political ideas, they're essentially just a reiteration of the Whig Party platform at the time. So as a Whig, this means he supports internal improvements, he's pro-business. The one issue, though, where divergent opinions are starting to emerge in the Whig Party is slavery. The most famous Whig in New York back then was William Henry Seward, who was strongly, adamantly anti-slavery. But Fillmore actually positions himself in contrast to Seward as a real moderate on the issue. Fillmore is only mildly anti-slavery. It's actually Fillmore's moderation and his lack of strong views that are precisely why he ends up as vice president on Zachary Taylor's presidential ticket in 1848. The Whig Party needs to win New York State because that's really important in the presidential election at the time. But they also want someone who's not going to offend Southern voters too much. In some ways, it seems to be he represents the idea that extremes are not good. And here's a sort of mediocre guy who becomes a Whig politician and in uh, a period of in American history, when there was this idea that you needed sectional balance, uh, Fillmore became an attractive candidate. Taylor and Fillmore win the election and take office in 1849. But as you heard in the previous episode, in July of 1850, Zachary Taylor dies leaving Fillmore to take up the presidency. 
This is now the second time in U.S. history that a vice president ends up commander-in-chief after a death in the White House. The important thing is that, I think in terms of Millard Fillmore, is that he's, he's an accidental president. And we've only had about, what, six of these when the president dies or is, is assassinated. And I think a guy who came from his background, and all of a sudden, you're the president of the United States, it's, I think, was quite a shock to him. He does indicate that. Um, he also had done very little as vice president. Uh, vice presidents in the 19th century were seldom heard from. They presided over the Senate, and there are some references to Fillmore while he was presiding over uh, the Senate and how he was very fair-minded in terms of the way that he called on senators and interpreted the rules. In any case, the fact that you're accidental and the people really haven't voted for you and you've been in this office in which nothing really is expected uh, of you, um, I think it's one of the reasons why Millard Fillmore is so invisible in terms of our understanding of modern presidential politics. Okay, so what does he actually do in office as president? Well, the one really notable thing that happens on his watch is the Compromise of 1850 which was already brewing in Congress at the time of Taylor's death. To understand the Compromise of 1850, though, it's basically necessary to back up again to the Mexican War, which took place under President Polk. That's when the U.S. gained more than 500,000 square miles of Mexican land, basically all of California, and then also a lot of the land that's between California and Texas. All of this territory essentially becomes the flashpoint for the question of whether slavery should expand in the United States. So by the time Taylor and Fillmore are in office, Congress is now wrestling with this big question of what to do about slavery, but it's been triggered by this very specific question of what are they going to do in terms of slavery in these new territories. Congress is basically going back and forth trying to craft this compromise that makes the North happy and makes the South happy. And President Zachary Taylor is not a fan of all this wheeling and dealing and compromise making, and he thinks that this new territory should just come in as free states. Zachary Taylor was a Southern man of at least partly Northern principles. He, he came very much under the influence of William H. Seward. That's James McPherson, the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. William Henry Seward, as we mentioned earlier, was the senator from New York who was strongly anti-slavery. And interestingly, President Taylor, despite his southern roots and the fact that he himself actually owned slaves, was taking some of his cues on this issue of slavery from Seward. Uh, Taylor came under his, his influence, but because he died before most of the hot-button issues that emerged out of the Compromise of 1850 and the territorial question in the 1850s, um, it's, it's hard to say what his impact would have been had he continued uh, to serve out the rest of his term. 
What we do know, of course, is what Millard Fillmore ended up doing. Fillmore decides that, in contrast to his predecessor, Zachary Taylor, he is going to support the Compromise of 1850. That was such a controversial, hot-button decision that Taylor's cabinet unanimously resigns when Millard Fillmore takes office. So what is this compromise that Congress works out? Well, it basically makes the North happy by admitting California as a free state and by banning the slave trade in Washington, D.C. But at the same time, it's appeasing the South by letting the Utah and New Mexico territories decide for themselves whether or not to allow slavery and even more importantly, by enacting a fugitive slave law that basically makes it the government's responsibility to help capture escaped slaves anywhere in the country. Now remember that Fillmore himself doesn't craft this legislation, of course, it's Congress who does. But as president, Fillmore says he will sign it into law, and that is something that Zachary Taylor was not going to do. And that is the signal contribution, almost, of his administration, uh, his support and the final passage. Now, I don't know whether Congress would have passed it without uh, his at least tipping his hand and saying that he would support it. I don't know that. I mean, it's a hypothetical kind of question, but nonetheless, uh, his administration is tied to that effort in as early as the 1850s to work out some sort of a national compromise so that the South, uh, aggressively supporting slavery, will uh, at least stay in the Union and the North will get some sorts of its interests agreed to. Was Fillmore's decision to support this compromise a good thing? That's an interesting question that historians still don't quite agree upon. Some say that it was an earnest attempt to appease both factions, and that it did at least help delay civil war for about a decade. Others like James McPherson think that this highlighted Fillmore's lack of strong moral character, and this fugitive slave law in particular actually deepened the country's divisions. Clearly, the decisions and, and consequences of those decisions in the uh, 1850s led to uh, enormous crises. And what we can learn from that, I guess, is uh, that uh, some some decisions have unintended consequences, and if one can beware of the potential for unintended consequences, that is a hallmark not only of good leadership but of um, common sense and, and patriotism. Uh, Millard Fillmore was uh, a member of the so-called hunker faction in the Whig Party. That is, they hankered after office a, a man who uh, was more of a um, politician than he was a man of, of any kind of principle. He strongly supported enforcement of the fugitive slave law during his uh, two and a half years as president, and helped to drive a wedge be- into the growing schism between North and South, or between anti-slavery and pro-slavery fractions in North and South. A man of, of relatively weak principles and leadership capacity. 
Horace Greeley, who was the editor of the New York Herald, said something similar at the time. He said, quote, Fillmore lacks pluck. He wants backbone. He means well, but he is timid, irresolute, uncertain, and loves to lean. While the fact that Fillmore appeased the South by signing into law the Fugitive Slave Act did draw him a lot of criticism in the North, the law essentially required all states, including northern free states, to help capture escaped slaves. It even went so far as to say that ordinary citizens had to aid in their capture, which, of course, deeply enraged those who were anti-slavery and wanted no part in being slave catchers. A lot of northerners even protested this by storming courthouses and prisons to free those who had been apprehended. Now, if we return to the question of how Millard Fillmore is taught today, it's worth noting that though his name may not come up in classrooms, this Fugitive Slave Act that he signed into law usually does. And for a long time, one of the main tools for teaching about it was the book Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. That novel came out in 1852 while Fillmore was still in office, and it depicted the life of runaway slaves. Uncle Tom's Cabin became the best-selling novel of the entire 19th century. I talked with my colleague T. Reese Shapiro about whether this is still a fixture in U.S. classrooms today. I'd say it's definitely a book that a lot of elementary school students are aware of. It's probably in most you know, school libraries across the country. But you can imagine even just a few decades ago during the Civil Rights era, to pick up a book like that in a classroom in like Atlanta or Birmingham, it, it was a lot more profound. But its, it's themes uh, are pretty obvious to kids today. Yeah, slavery is awful, right? I mean, they, they don't have to read a book to sort of contextualize that in their minds. Even more than Millard Fillmore's name, Uncle Tom's Cabin is probably something sure. that comes up in, in class. Yeah, and I'd say that that's definitely a fact of its of its impact at its time. I mean, it was, the as you described, the first major international bestseller mm-hmm. by an American author. And um, Abraham Lincoln allegedly told Harry Beecher Stowe, you're the little lady that made this great big war. And sort of where this ties back to Millard Fillmore is it sort of underscores the fact that this fugitive slave law in particular as part of the Compromise of 1850 became such a such a polarizing and, and divisive bill that, that really, in some ways, this compromise did less to heal any wounds to between compromise. the North and South, but um, actually exacerbated and, and heightened a lot of the tensions. Definitely. It seems like one of the other reasons that it's fallen off the curriculum in some schools is just because while it has this very strong anti-slavery message, a lot it's written by a white author and a lot of the characters are sort of portrayed in very stereotypical Absolutely. ways that don't... Like, yeah, it was a book written 170 years ago, and a lot of things, a lot of the thematic issues remain, that one race can't rule over another, but uh, the writer, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe, obviously stuck to a lot of the language that at the time was common, but that in today's world we'd sort of look at as even being a, a little coarse, something that you wouldn't, you'd feel uncomfortable reading on the page. When educators today teach the period of the Civil War, they don't just need to decide whether to teach students about the pre-Lincoln presidents like Millard Fillmore, and they don't just need to decide whether to read or to just merely mention a book like Uncle Tom's Cabin. 
They also, in many cases, have to decide what in the world to do if their own school's name or campus statues or history in some way is tied to one of the period's more controversial figures. I think great examples is, um, and and Millard Fillmore sort of plays a role in, in what he did to or didn't do to prevent the fracturing of our of our country is then the figures who came out of the Civil War. So even just locally, we have Jefferson Davis Highway, who is the president of the Confederacy. We have Robert E. Lee High School. We have Jeb Stewart High School. We have Washington Lee High School. And even you have Washington uh, Lee University uh, in Lexington. There's a lot of places of higher learning, you could say, that sort of have these very interesting histories of themselves and their own connections, however tenuous to these these people that we sort of agree now, maybe we shouldn't lionize. I mean, Jeb Stewart was a Confederate general, and yet in Fairfax County, the school remains and the name remains. They've done over decades things to change uh, the way that the school is represented. So for instance, there used to be a gigantic Confederate flag. Well, they removed that, obviously. The mascot used to be a rebel soldier. It's no longer a rebel soldier. That school specifically has a large population of minority students, Hispanics uh, and African-Americans and Asians. And yet the, the person who's, whose name is above the door of the school that they enter every day is this person who, if it were up to him, right? Some of those students may have been the, the children of slaves. And obviously there's an intellectual decision a lot of schools and universities and high schools have to make. We can't change history, obviously. And what does it mean then to even try and erase it by taking these names away? Maybe you can use it as this, lear- this moment of learning, um, which a lot of high schools, I use Stewart as an example, do. They will talk about him specifically and his role in the Civil War more even because his name is on the, is on the building. But I think that there is a, a pretty decent argument that's being debated um, among colleges nationwide about what, what do we do? Do we, do we try and protect students is sort of the language that they use from these, these symbols of hate and hatred? Or do we leave them there and sort of acknowledge that, yeah, this is a really terrible moment of our history, but we can't hide from it. We can't embrace it, but we need to understand it so that it doesn't keep happening. While Millard Fillmore isn't one of our more divisive historical figures, exactly, but I do think it's worth asking the question, what do we lose if we tend to erase his name and his presidency from the way we study the lead-up to the Civil War? It's not just great people and horrible people who shape our country's history. It's also people who don't have strong voices. It's people who are moderate. It's people who are trying to find middle roads. It's people who are making concessions that are sometimes good and sometimes bad, who are also shaping this trajectory of America's history. I asked Jean Baker, what else might we be missing by skipping over the person of Millard Fillmore? Is there anything else that a student of any age could gain from not just learning about his time period, but actually learning about him? Well, I think I think a couple things. One is the idea that that every young boy can rise up and be president. I mean, we have not had many truly poor presidents. Bill Clinton is one. Abraham Lincoln's another. But so is Millard Fillmore. 
So I, re- I think he represents the possibilities. His presidency represents the possibilities. Now, granted, a lot of things had to happen, especially the death of um, the president who was elected. But nonetheless, I think that's one thing we might remember about Fillmore. The other thing is that as early as 1850s, we're beginning to see the real disruption of uh, the Union. He's the last Whig president in our history. The party was not a, a, a very long-term party because it's unable to make a, take a real stand nationally on slavery, it disappears. And what replaces it is, of course, the Republican Party, which is formed in 1854 and stands very strongly on the platform of no slavery in the territories. There will always be critics of Millard Fillmore who really feel that he wasn't a very forceful president and did not have a forceful uh, personality. Uh, In terms of ending the conversation on Fillmore, Mm -hmm. I think we might remind ourselves of one thing that he is reputed to have said. He supposedly said, may God save the country, the people will not, which I think is a harbinger, perhaps, of today's politics. Well, it seems that no presidential episode is complete without some horrible, sad death at the end of it. And in this case, it's Millard Fillmore's wife and his daughter, who both die only about a month after he leaves office. His wife dies of pneumonia, and his daughter dies of cholera, which is the same thing that we have been seeing for so many others already in our series. But here's one interesting, bright, positive thing that Millard Fillmore and his wife Abigail did while he was still president. They built a library in the White House, the first White House library. And remember back to how Millard Fillmore didn't have any schooling until he was nearly 20 and he started taking some classes as an adult? Well, it was actually Abigail, who was only two years older than he was, who was his teacher, and they end up eventually getting married. It's pretty remarkable that of all the presidents to create a White House library, the one who did it was possibly our least educated president. But, you know, perhaps that's because he deeply valued and recognized the power of books to help lift a boy out of poverty. In that spirit, I just want to say that it's been so amazing to learn how many of our listeners have embarked on their own challenge of reading a biography about each president. And even just how many people have been listening to this podcast, because because you actually do want to learn more about the American presidents than you had a chance to learn growing up. I just, I found it really inspiring to see people's desire for knowledge and for self-improvement. And I'm certainly right there with you. So a few listeners have already actually shared photos with me of their bookshelves full of presidential biographies. 
And I started thinking that in honor of Millard Fillmore's episode, since he was self-educated, he started the White House Library, and yet he's one of the presidents who's actually really, really hard to find a biography of, that you know what would be really fun would be to share photos of our own bookshelves with presidential biographies. Whether you have one book or you have a hundred books, if you use the hashtag presidential library, I will look for your photos over the course of this week and I'll share them on our presidential Instagram accounts or Instagram account and our Twitter account so that everyone can check out everyone else's reading list. And let me also just take a moment to be totally honest about the fact that this stretch of episodes leading up to Lincoln has been pretty hard <laughs> to pull together. There are not many experts on Millard Fillmore or Franklin Pierce or Zachary Taylor. Everyone wants to talk about Lincoln, and few people really want to sit down and, uh, and dive into some of these other figures. So special thanks to Jean Baker and James McPherson for sharing their expertise for this episode and to Henry Rodiger for sharing his research on our memory of presidents. And then to my colleague, T. Rees Shapiro, who did a lot of studying up so that he could talk about how we study these presidents. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Westner, and production help for this episode is by Karen Turner. Next week, the Republican Party is born, and President Franklin Pierce will enter the White House distraught and distracted by a horrific personal tragedy. We are now two episodes away from Civil War. I'll find you again next week on the next episode of Presidential. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.